All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Riverwood. Uh, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood, and I am so grateful that uh, Michelle and uh, you know Anna and everyone else is just willing to step up. Uh, Jake was asked quite a long time ago to lead worship for a. Uh, uh, celebrate recovery retreat, and uh, I am so thankful that we have the leaders that can fill in to allow him to go and be a blessing uh, to them. And I had a chance to see it. It was Friday night, Saturday night, and this morning, and I had a, see, a chance to see him uh, Friday and then talk to him on the phone yesterday afternoon, and things were going really, really well. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we could uh, just release him to go bless them, uh, knowing that Michelle would be here to help bless us today. Uh, if you are a first-time guest, when you walked in, hopefully one of our ushers got you that handout. Inside of there are a bunch of announcements. Feel free to read through those. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to that connection card that's inside of there. Uh, our church family fills that card out every week. We just fill out the top line with the date. And please, everyone date it because every once in a while a card gets misplaced and I don't know where to then file it. Uh, and just so you know, we don't have like years of, of cards. I just keep, keep them around just in case they're like someone's like, hey, I signed up for something to, to make sure. Yeah, uh, actually, you know what? Today, today marks 10 years since our first pre-launch. Uh, service. Uh, Ten years ago, we had a pre-launch service, and so uh, I, I totally forgot. It was a friend who texted me, and it's like, man, ten years and 26 locations ago. Uh, so he, he wasn't completely wrong. Um, but anyway, if you're a first-time guest, uh, if you would fill out the entire front of that connection card, what we do for every guest that fills that out, we donate $5 to Compassion International. Uh, Compassion is an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work through local churches all around the globe, helping children get food, clothing, shelter, education, but most of all, by working through a church, they hear about this life-changing gospel of Christ. It's the very thing that we as a church are, are passionate about. It's what you're gonna hear about in our sermon out of Acts today, and it's what Compassion is trying to do globally. So if you would like to help us make small difference in the life of a child, uh, fill out that card, drop it in the uh, giving box on your way out, and uh, we will be sure to get that sent off to Compassion and make that difference for them. Uh, okay, I know we've got the, uh, the video. Uh, do I have an announcement? though food pantry is in two days. Yeah. Okay. So we're serving at the food pantry. So if you are available, go to that link, uh, just sign up, let them know if you are available to help with the setup and, or stick around for the, uh, uh distribution shift at about 5.30 uh, down at City Hall, the, the Civic Center side of that building. All right, uh, a few weeks ago, we reached out to Josh and Hillary Smith, uh, realized we hadn't really heard from them in a bit. Josh and Hillary are our missionaries to Cambodia. So I just reached out to Josh and said, hey, would you guys want to throw together a uh, video update for us? And so Josh sent something to us this week. So I want you guys to be able to watch it, and then we're going to take a moment to pray for them. So watch Josh's update. Hi, Riverwood family. My name is Josh and uh, I'm a missionary in Cambodia. I want to say thank you so much for the church's support of my family and our ministry. I want to share a brief update and a little bit of what we do in Cambodia. We do four things, evangelism, discipleship, we care for the poor, and we empower local Cambodian believers to do ministry as well. Evangelism, we travel to different unreached villages. I just got back from a trip. Uh, we were on the border of Cambodia and Vietnam and I talked to nearly 50 people in one day who had never heard the name of Jesus before. Because of your guys' support, we're able to go share the gospel with these people. So thank you so much. It's a blessing to be on the front lines. The second thing is we do discipleship. Um, if villages or people show interest in learning about Jesus, um, we'll meet inside their houses sometimes. Sometimes it'll be an entire village. We'll do a 12-week series from creation to Christ to give them a foundation to choose to trust in Jesus on. The third thing that we do is caring for the poor people. Um, it's 
kind of heartbreaking to see some of the poverty here. I've come back from certain poor communities and I've just, just wept um, because of the poverty I see. Um, it's hard to explain. I'll show a few pictures of just the housing that certain people live in. Um, oftentimes there's many children and families who only eat a bowl of rice and some soy sauce a day. And so it's a blessing to be able to share the spiritual nourishment for their souls and also the physical nourishment for their bodies. Thank you for allowing and supporting us to do that. And fourth, um, we, we empower local Cambodian believers to continue the work. If worst case happens to me or my family, if we have to leave or something worse happens, um, I wanna empower the Cambodian believers to continue doing the ministry um, no matter what. And so thank you so much for your guys' support. What can you do? If you're interested in receiving our email updates, please send me your email address. Just give me your name and say, hey, uh, sign us up for monthly updates. Um, our email address is Josh and Hillary Smith at gmail.com. Josh and Hillary Smith at gmail.com. Please sign up for our email updates. The second thing you can do is please pray for us. Please pray for my family, our ministry, that God would protect us from any dangers and that his will would be done. Um, and third, um, if you're willing um, to send financial support, we already are so thankful for the church supporting us monthly. It's such a blessing. Um, and if you're personally wanting to give a donation, you can email us about that personally. Finally, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for your prayers. We really couldn't do without you guys. We're the body of Christ. We're serving him overseas and you're serving him in the U.S. Keep shining for Jesus. God bless you. All right, so let's, uh, whoa. I have no idea, but I sound like God. Uh, let's, let's take a moment and uh, let's pray for Josh and Hillary. Well, Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you so much for bringing Josh and Hillary into uh, our church's family lives, um, that even though we have not met them in person yet, uh, we are tied to them because they are doing there what we are seeking to do here. And so, Father, I do pray, as Josh asked, uh, that we, you would protect them. Protect them, please, physically. Uh, they live in an area where there are some people very, very, very opposed to what they are trying to, to do. Uh, please protect them emotionally. I, I uh, pray that you would help them to know that there are others with them, not just us here emotionally and spiritually with them, but that you would put people right there who are with them in this and so they don't feel like they are doing it alone. Uh, but also, Lord, would you protect them spiritually? Uh, as we're going to see in today's text and Acts, uh, Satan is actively trying to thwart your, the expansion of your church to, to stop the move of the gospel. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would protect Josh and Hillary so that nothing would happen to them. Lord, please give them great fruit in this ministry. Help them to have the resources that they need to provide for people physically as they also seek to provide for them spiritually. I pray that they would just see tremendous fruit, that, that they would see an explosion of the gospel as, as we're going to hear today, that as the gospel is just growing all over the place, including Asia. I pray that they would get to experience that right there in Cambodia. Uh, so, Father, uh, anything that we are unaware of, uh, I pray that you would meet those needs. Uh, but would you just continue to keep Josh and Hillary on our hearts and our minds so that we might just continue to lift them up uh, in prayer. And uh, I look forward to the day when they can be with us in person and, and uh, we get to hear these things straight from them. Uh, so, Father, protect them and uh, then use this morning, uh, use our time in, in Acts to, to help us be moved so that we can become these kind of people, that we would build our lives upon the foundation of your love, that we'd be people who would go to be a blessing, to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. So, Father, use this morning to shape us, uh, and we, we ask for you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, back in the early 2000s, I had uh, been told that the Christianity was gl growing globally in two places. Uh, one was South uh, America, and that excited me because Leanne and I had spent a couple of years working in Venezuela, so it was exciting to hear about how the church was just exploding with growth in the early 2000s there. But it was also growing a lot in China. And I had a chance to sit in on a, a class, a missions class, and what I heard there was that China was growing so rapidly in, in Christianity that 150,000 Chinese people were putting their faith in Jesus every day. Think about that. Two Kinnick Stadiums worth of people every day realizing that Jesus died on a cross for their sins and rose again from the dead. I mean, just absolutely mind-boggling. Over the last decade or so, that growth has shifted a little bit. South America is still growing, but not at the rate as it once was. That sort of growth is now happening in Africa. Also, China is continuing to grow, but they've seen the growth spread out to the rest of Asia, primarily to India and Indonesia. They're, they're exploding like never before. In fact, there are portions where the, the growth in Christianity is doubling that of just general population growth. It's just out, out the, the roof. Now, there are naysayers who hear these sort of statistics and they say, well, of course it's growing there because the religion always grows among the poor and uneducated. Now, we're going to ignore for a minute just how offensive that sentence is. But what they would try to roll out is data showing how the educated West, America and uh, Europe, and how we have such low ad religious adherence and attendance. Where, where we used to be the powerhouses within Christendom, it is now dropped. In fact, uh, this chart here shows Europe and uh, uh, the U.S. And I know you can't see it very well from where you are at. Uh, but all the red are the 50 United States and the blue are the countries of Europe. The average church, uh, not I got to correct myself. This is not church attendance. This is religious attendance. So this includes mosques, uh, synagogues, any sort of, of religious type of service. The average in America is 25%. And in Europe, it is 14%. Right? Now, if you're wondering where Iowa is, we're kind of right there in the middle. We're at 23%. We're just underneath. Interestingly enough, the, the country, uh, the place with the highest rate of attendance in, these, in this region is Poland at 44%. Uh, go figure. Uh, go, go Polish people. All right, but, but that's, that's not very many people. All right, so that means that right now, 75% of our fellow Iowans are not doing any sort of religious observance today. Now, this doesn't mean some of them don't have some sort of private faith, personal beliefs, but they're just choosing not to participate in anything because they don't see the value in it. It, 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 we are still in America, there's still growth, and as well as in, in Europe, there is still uh, spiritual growth. Christianity is growing at point, uh, what was it, 0.27% in America, and it's growing at 0.06% in Europe. So it is growing, but if you're below 1%, you're not keeping up with population growth. And so the population is getting larger. And so even though you're seeing more people put their faith in Jesus, or there's some people born into a Christian home and end up getting counted in those numbers, but we're not even keeping pace with population growth. Now, over in Asia, it's 1.5%. Uh, they're above that 1%, so they are. They're, they're over that. In, in Africa, it's 2.77%. I mean, that's like revival type of numbers. Right? So it's happening there, and it's not happening here. Proof... 
that religion is only for the poor and uneducated. Because atheists would argue that once you learn some science, once you learn philosophy, once you learn logic, you start realizing that this whole concept of God is untenable and you begin to withdraw from any sort of religious activity. That this sort of stuff is just for those who are simple of mind and small of wallet. And yet, just 10 days ago, a guy by the name of Ryan Berg, he's the research director for a, a small little like survey and statistical analysis group that deals in matters of religion. His group's called Faith Count. And they just put out data 15, uh, 10 days ago saying for that the last 15 years running, the higher of a degree you have, the more likely you are to attend church. That actually the lowest church attendance is among those who have no high school diploma. The rates of atheism are highest among those who do not have a diploma. And yet, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to participate in some sort of religious service. Kind of breaks the narrative. Oh, and if you shift the focus away from education onto income... You notice it isn't the poor who have the highest rate of attendance in a church. It's the middle class. You can see the, the, in the charts the, the, the bubbles. The ends are the lowest. The middle class, they're the ones who are most active. It, it shatters this narrative that religion, things of faith, are only for the poor and uneducated. Now, if you're into statistics and cultural trends like this, you're really, really fascinated but if you're actually like normal, you're probably starting to get just a touch bored. Like, where is Aaron going with all of this? I came to study the Bible. Why is he showing charts? Today, we get to go back to the book of Acts. Uh, we started the book of Acts back in February, uh, chapter 1. And uh, we've, we've had a couple breaks here and there. Like this summer, we did the book of Ruth. We did our short little series, Penny Christian. But now we're, we're coming back to it. And we're, we're jumping back in at chapter 8. But where we jump in, we're going to begin to see three stories, three different people whose lives were changed by the gospel. And what we're going to discover about these three people is that they don't fit the narrative. Like Ryan Berg of Faith Counts has discovered, the gospel and religion is not just for poor people. It is also for rich. It's not just for the marginalized. It is also for the influencer. It's not just for the uneducated it is for those who've studied these matters, who've grown of mind. In other words, we're going to see that this gospel is for anyone and it can change anyone's life. And I won't lie. My agenda is that you would realize that this gospel can change you and it can change the lives of those around you. And so that's why we're going to do the sub-series within the book of Acts called Changed. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 8. If you are a first-time guest and didn't bring a Bible, we will have the scripture on the screen. But if you have a Bible on your phone, we are totally fine with digital Bibles. Feel free to pull that out. Or if you actually want to like, be more spiritual, uh, you can stop by our resource table and uh, pick up a paper Bible. We'd love for that to become your everyday Bible. And uh, feel free to just take that home and use it any and every day. Uh, Today, the story we're going to see is, is a, a very rich, influential man changed by the gospel. However, for us to really understand his story, we need a little bit of context. We kind of need to understand one of these, the main characters in this guy's conversion story. That story starts back in, in verse 4. So if you have your Bible open there, go to Acts chapter 8, 
Start with me down at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. When we uh, stopped in the book of Acts back in June, uh, we got through chapter 7, dipped into chapter 8 here, because we heard Stephen's story. Uh, We actually had a chance to meet Stephen when we were in chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 6, there was this issue going on where certain widows were not being included in the distribution of food. A number of people had been giving finances to help provide food, and the church was taking on the care of a number of these widows because these widows had no one to provide for them. But what began to happen was racial discrimination. Those who were of Hebrew descent were receiving food, but those who were of Greek descent were not. And so the apostles were like, this is not right. All people matter to God. And so they're like, we need to assign this task to provide some oversight to this. So they asked the church to to nominate some men. And the first one they nominated was Stephen. Now, Stephen, it turns out, was more than just a really, really good restaurant waiter for widows. This dude was really powerful in the spirit. He was out in the community sharing about Jesus, about the resurrection. And to back it up, he was even performing signs and wonders. We usually only saw that phrase attached to the apostles. Stephen is the first person mentioned of doing miracles to back up his teaching about the resurrection. What was happening though, is as you go through the book of Acts, you see the frustration of the religious leaders. In chapter 3, they just kind of verbally threaten uh, Peter and John to be quiet but they let them go. In chapter five, we see some other apostles arrested, but this time they're actually beaten physically and yet they will not stop. And now here's Stephen out there preaching this gospel to everyone and they start getting so frustrated. They decide to create some lies about him, say that he's saying things he's not actually saying so that they have an excuse to arrest him and then bring him to trial. And so what we saw as we studied through chapter seven was his defense. What he did was he starts basically just retelling the story of the Jewish people. By doing so, he's saying, I'm one of you. I am a fellow Jew. And therefore, if I, as a fellow Jew, realize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why can't you, these religious leaders who know the scriptures, see this as well? Well, he's the one on trial. How dare he ask them the questions? They should be asking him. Plus, he won't drop this crazy idea. People don't rise from the dead. This is ruining Judaism. And so in their anger, they don't just verbally threaten him like they did in chapter four. They don't just physically beat him like they did in chapter five. They drag him outside. They pick up stones and they exact capital punishment upon him and they execute him. And it's like the dam burst forth and all of this anger just comes against the church And we see in chapter 8, verse 1, that the church was scattered. Now, as we come back to Acts, we get to find out, well, what did these people who were scattering do? Did they just run and hide in caves? Did they enter the witness protection program? What did they do? Well, it tells us there in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Think about how crazy that is. 
I mean, preaching the word, telling people about the resurrection of Jesus is what got them in trouble in the first place. And yet they can't stay quiet. They're, they're scattering, fleeing for their lives. And yet as they come into these communities, they're like, oh yeah, I'm fleeing from, from Jerusalem because they were trying to kill me because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Have you heard about this? And they just start telling everyone all about it. But Luke does not want us to just kind of see this in a broad theoretical perspective. He wants us to see it actually happening. And that's why he takes us on this little journey with Philip. Now, we met Philip when we met Stephen. Philip is the next guy named as one of these deacons. But he also, like Stephen, was, was way more than just, you know, a warehouse manager seeing the food in and out. He, he was actually out in the community preaching this gospel. And so when this persecution breaks out, he also flees. But notice where he went. It says that he went to a city of Samaria. Probably what it means is he went to the region, to a city in the region of Samaria. Samaria was the region of the outcasts. These were the half Jews, half Gentiles. Most of the Jewish people didn't really include them. So they kind of had their own culture. They kind of took some of the, the Jewish scriptures and kind of turned it a little bit and twisted it. And so the Jews didn't like them. And yet he ends up in Samaria. And yet this is exactly what God wanted. In week two of our series in Acts, we heard Jesus give a mandate to the church. He said in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We saw that part fulfilled in chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, as we work through Acts, as we get to the martyrdom of Stephen, in chapter 7, they've only been witnesses in Jerusalem and a little bit out into Judea. And we can't get too mad at them because, I mean, all of these events are happening just within weeks or months after the resurrection of Jesus. So it isn't like they're being unfaithful. But again, the mandate is this gospel is not just to stay here. This news of the resurrection of Jesus, this was done for all people. It needs shared. So you got to go even to Samaria. Well, as we've been seeing, all this persecution coming against the church, these problems from outside, from the, Jewish, the, the religious leaders, some of the, the problems from within. Uh, we saw one in chapter 5 where a couple of people tried to lie to the apostles so that they could worm their way in and get some influence and power. We also saw the whole racial discrimination thing with the, the widows. There have been all these problems, and Satan's been trying to use that to kill and thwart and stop the church. And now, here, he's trying to do it again through the martyrdom of Stephen. But instead, what Satan intends to kill the church and stop it is the very thing God uses to expand the church. As these people are fleeing for their lives, including Philip, Philip is heading off to Samaria, and he's telling people about Jesus. And to back up his teaching, God gives him the ability to perform these miracles, casting out demons, healing people, so people realize there's truth in what he's saying. And did you notice verse 8? It said there that um, uh, there was much joy in the city. In other words, they receive this gospel. They believe it. And their lives are changed. Now, Luke tells us this short little story about Luke. I'm sorry, about Philip. So that we would understand who Philip is, the kind of person he was, and how God uses him to change the life of our key uh, main character today. So flip over to, uh, stay there in chapter 8, but go over to verse 26. Acts 8, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise. 
and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I want you to think about what this moment may have been like for Philip. Philip's been doing ministry here in Samaria. We don't know if it's been a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, but he has seen some amazing things happen. Demons being kicked out of people, people being healed, people putting their lives, their faith in Jesus, like a church is starting. Like this is revival. This is exciting. This is what he was experiencing in Jerusalem with the early church. Now he's seeing it spread to these people that the Jews thought were outcasts and it shows that God actually loves them and is for them. And now suddenly God says, hey, I want you to take off to the desert. Now maybe Philip just, all right, I'll go. But I wouldn't be surprised if Philip kind of stopped and said, wait, what? You, you want me to go Where? God, there's people here. Like, surely I could continue to do ministry here. Or, or maybe you want me to go to another city in Samaria. Or, or, or maybe, God, you, you could like send me someplace cool like Rome or Greece. Like, but the desert, there, there's no people there. That doesn't make any sense. But he somehow ends up out there. And when he gets out there, off in the distance, he sees this chariot starting to come toward him. And he senses God saying, all right, run up to the chariot. So he runs up alongside of it. And he meets our main character. We, we do not get to know this guy's name, but we learn several key critical clues about him. The first is we learn that he is an Ethiopian. Now, chances are he was not from modern day Ethiopia because it says that he was from the court of Candace, right? Candace, I thought this was always like a queen's name. Turns out it's an honorific title, kind of like Pharaoh, and the, the Candace, the queen of, of Ethiopia, this was the Nubian kingdom. And it was located south of Egypt, which would be modern-day Sudan. Still, he's traveled a long way. But he's not an Ethiopian as we would think of it. He would be from Sudan. But by calling him an Ethiopian, this is, this is Luke's way of letting us know he's a black man who's traveled a long distance. The second thing we learn about him is he's a eunuch. Now, to our fifth and sixth graders who are in here today, this will be just a little awkward. If you don't know what the word castrated means, talk to your mom and dad afterwards. But a eunuch is someone who's been castrated so that they can give full service to the king. Some of it is so that they wouldn't bother being married, wouldn't have kids, so they could be soldiers and no one would miss them when they're killed in battle. Some, it was because they were working with the women. In fact, some kings had a harem and there would be men who would be caring for these women. So to make sure that nothing happened, the men were castrated. This guy, though, is not just working with the women. It says that he was the queen's treasurer. This is not some second-class citizen because of this. No, this is like the top dog. 
This is a guy with influence. This is a guy with power. This is a guy with money. And if you need proof, just look at the chariot. In that day, the main mode of transportation was your feet. You walked everywhere. If you were upper middle class, you might have some sort of beast of burden, like a donkey who would, like, you could ride upon. But to have a chariot? Only the Bill Gates of their day got to have a chariot. And not only that, he's not even driving. He's got someone to do that for him. I mean, this is like a Volkswagen Beetle limousine. I mean, this is the coolest thing you've seen. This dude is rich and wealthy. Also, the third thing we learn about him is he's very educated. We, we know that because he's reading and I want you to realize that he had a language back home, and yet he would have been reading this out of the Septuagint, which would be the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So he's fluent in Greek enough he's able to read it. Now you may be wondering, well, he's reading it aloud. You know, like is he working on his hooked on phonics or something? No, he's reading aloud because that's what everyone did in the ancient, uh, ancient world. They, they weren't trained and taught to read silently. When you read, you read aloud. But that's exactly what God used to have Philip come up alongside and hear him reading. And what Philip hears him read is this. this uh, go to uh, verses 32 and 33. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who could describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now in Philip's day, they did not have any uh, chapter divisions. You and I, we, we are able to have a Bible where someone's gone through, added these chapter divisions, and they've added verse divisions to make it even easier for us to find things. And so we know that this comes from Isaiah 53 verses 7 and 8. And in, in Isaiah 53, if you want to have your mind blown, if you're not uh, used to the Old Testament, go, make a note right now on your phone to later today, go read Isaiah 53. And as you read it, think about Jesus dying on a cross. And it is scary accurate how much it predicts the crucifixion of Jesus. And then when you read it, realize it was written probably 600 years or more before the events actually happened. This was prophecy about Christ. However, this educated man is able to read it, but he didn't understand it. That is why we see in verse 34, he asked a question. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip takes that opportunity in verse 35 to begin to explain that the lamb described in that passage is Jesus the Lamb of God, who stayed silent before his, his accusers and ended up being slaughtered upon a cross. And then he probably explained the rest of Isaiah 53, that he did this for the transgressions of the people. He died for our sins. But if you get to the end of Isaiah 53, you see that this guy who dies for these people's sins, he, he's alive at the end of the story. He's alive at the end of the chapter. And that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem just a few months prior to this conversation taking place. Now I want you to imagine that you're the Ethiopian eunuch. You've traveled weeks upon a chariot up to Jerusalem to worship God. And now on your way home, 
You just happen to meet this guy who comes up alongside your chariot. You just happen to be reading out of the Bible the very events that were prophesied and had just taken place. These events you probably heard about while you were in Jerusalem. Maybe he was even there when this whole martyrdom of Stephen was taking place just a few days prior. And now he's hearing that this is all about Jesus. And he believes. That's why we see him respond like this. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Baptism ties you to the gospel. Baptism is you saying, I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That just as Jesus gave his life for me, I now publicly say, I'm giving my life to him. That this is the preaching of the gospel through your body. And you're saying, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Jesus died for me. And so I will die a death like him. I will be baptized and showing this outward washing, which reveals the inward washing that has taken place through the Holy Spirit. This Ethiopian eunuch believes and decides, I got to be baptized. But remember, where, where are they in the story? They're in the desert, right? What makes a desert a desert? No, no water. And yet they just so happen to come upon a wadi, some water, and he's like, why should I not be baptized? I believe. Tradition holds that this man ended up not only going home and continuing to follow Jesus, but he ended up sharing the gospel. He shares his faith with others, and other people believed, and eventually a church was formed, and that church grew. And now you begin to understand why God might call Philip to go to the desert where there is no one. Because this was not just one man who was changed. It ended up being hundreds, if not thousands of people changed. So a couple things that I really hope you'll take away from the story. Number one, I really hope you see the sovereignty of God. God is in control of all of this. This is not a coincidence. This is a setup. God knows this man and wants this man and so God divinely orchestrated all of this, that he would be in the desert at that moment where Philip would come up at that moment right as he's reading out of that passage in Isaiah so that he could then have those questions answered, see this is about Jesus, to realize these events all just took place. Now God's saying, I love you, I want you, follow me, here's some water, let's be baptized. God orchestrated all of it. But probably just an hour before these things took place, the Ethiopian eunuch and, and Philip are probably asking all sorts of questions. Why are you sending me to the desert? Why did I go all the way to Jerusalem and I didn't feel like I met you, God? Why am I out here in the middle of no place? And yet it's right there in the middle of their confusion that God meets them. You might be in a place right now where you have no idea what is happening. Why does God have you in that job? Why did God call you to Waverly at this time? Why are, are you out for that sport? Why didn't you get into that particular team? You don't understand what's happening. 
And yet God might just be orchestrating something beautiful and great. What it means is you've got to trust him. You've got to hold on. You don't know when you're going to get the answer. You, you may not get it for a while. But God knows what's happening with you. And just as Satan tried to stop the church, God used that to expand the church. This might be Satan trying to ruin your life. And yet God is able to turn it around and do something beautiful through your life. So hold on. Don't give up. Because this God is sovereign. He's in control and he knows what's happening. Second thing I hope you see is the draw of God. On the surface, you would think that this Ethiopian eunuch is seeking after God. I mean, he's made the long trip up to uh, Jerusalem. Perhaps he's already a Jewish proselyte. He, he's already converted. Or, or maybe he's just going to investigate. Maybe he's re sensing like the, the religion in my kingdom. It, there's something lacking. There's something missing. And so he hears about Judaism. He hears about this one God. And so he goes to investigate. He goes to learn. And on the way home, he hears that this one God is three persons. The second one, the God, the son, came to earth, lived a sinless life, but died the sinner's death. And to prove his love and power, he rose again from the dead. And in that moment, he realizes, this is not just me seeking after God. God has been drawing me. And he gives his life to him. And so if you're here today and you're already a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask, who around you might be open? Who around you is asking questions? Who, who around you it seems to be soft-hearted? Who around you does God seem to be drawing? If you begin to see them and notice them and identify them, pray that God would make you their Philip. Pray that God would arrange it for you to come alongside them. You may feel like you don't have all the answers. When Philip ran up to that chariot, he had no idea what this guy was doing, what he was reading. This is a powerful, rich, wealthy, influential man. He could just tell Philip, go away and expect it done. And yet he runs up next to him and God orchestrates all of this. Who might God be putting you in their lives because he's drawing them, he's wooing them, because he loves them. Jesus died for them. And God might just use you to help change their life. But if you're here today, or you're joining us online, or you're listening to the podcast in the middle of the week, and you're not a follower of Jesus, then I hope today I am your Philip. Your chariot brought you here today. Somehow you've connected to this. And God is saying, I wanted you here so that you could hear, I love you. My son died for you. I want you to be mine. Follow the lead of the Ethiopian eunuch and give your life to him. Because God wants to change you into the image of Jesus. So that, like it says on our wall out there, so that you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. But the beginning step is to give your life to him. To put all of your faith, all of your identity in Christ. And so if that's you, would you join me right now in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just pray for the, the man or the woman, the, 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 the kid, the adult that has heard this and they realize that you are for them. You love them. These are not just events that took place back in history. This isn't just some empty religion that only the foolish would believe. That these things are true. They really did happen. 
And that you are now extending your hand of fellowship, an extension of an invitation for them to give their life to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray right now you would hear their prayer as they admit that they've been living for themselves and they have not been living for you. But right now, they want to give their life to follow you. Hear them now, Father. And Lord, I pray for those that already know you. It is so easy for us to just get caught up in our own schedules, in our own lives, in our own worries, our own joys, to to get involved in our hobbies or just get trapped by our phones. And yet you want to do something through us. And so God, I ask that you would change us as well, that you would continue that deep work in us so that we might go to our own Samarias, we might go to our own deserts, we might go to these places and watch you change people's lives. And so Lord, help us to live open-handed to give all of us to you so that you might do more through us than we could ever dream or imagine. And so Lord, that means we got to give you our pasts. We got to give you our struggles. We we give you our worries. We give you our doubts. Lord, I I know that you're not asking us to, to pretend that these things never happened. Instead, we want to invite you in to help us to deal with these, to answer these things, to work. But God, help us to believe in your sovereignty that even what Satan intended for evil, for our destruction, you can work for good. You can work it for your glory. You can work it for our joy. So Father, I just pray right now, as we sing, as we pray, as we go to the communion tables, we would realize that you are drawing us, you are for us, and you want to do more in us and through us than we could ever dream or imagine. So Lord, I do pray for the person who today is putting their faith in you, that today becomes their spiritual birthday, that there would be a celebration in heaven and we would have joy in seeing Christianity continue to grow. And I pray for the person that already knows you, that you would give them the joy of sharing their faith and seeing other people come to know you, to see eternities changed, to see your gospel continue to move. So Lord, we give ourselves to you today ask you to work in us and through us for your glory and our joy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We want to open up the communion tables now. This is a time of response. If you need to just stay where you're at and and pray, by all means do so. Uh, If you need to just stand and and burst out in song and praising God for what he's done, please do so. If there are things that you've been wrestling with and you need to confess some sin, feel free to get on your knees. If there is someone that you have hurt or you have something against someone who's hurt you, if you need to, you you go talk to them right now. You, you, You shoot them a text saying, hey, can we talk later? This is your time to seek after God because God has drawn you here. He wants you. Now give yourself to him. As part of this, we open the communion tables. When you take that communion element, that, that wafer is the body of Christ that's been broken for you. When you open up that cup, that, that juice represents the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That As you take that into you, you are declaring yet again what Jesus did for you. If you are here today and and you are not convinced by what I said and you're not ready to give your life to Jesus, then I'm just going to ask that you just very respectfully not come to these elements. There are many people in Riverwood who used to be where you currently are. And so we are not going to judge you and think less of you because you didn't come. Instead, we'll we'll pray for you, that you would begin to understand the love of God for you. And, And so I just encourage you during the song, have a conversation with God. Ask him, is this all real? And if it is, 
then let this become your chance to pray and give yourself to him. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, even if this is your first time with us, we want you to celebrate, to thank God for what he's done. He wooed you, he drew you, and now he wants to use you. So give yourself to him. Let us do this now in remembrance of him.